when we experience his fullness, his majesty, his supersized grasp of the universe. God is behemoth. He's bulky. He's colossal. He's cyclopean. He's elephantine. He's enormous. He's extensive. He's gargantuan. He's giant. He's gigantic. He's great. He's immeasurable. He's immense. He's jumbo. He's levithian. He's lusty. He's monumental. He's magnificent. He's massive. He's mighty. He's mondo. He's monstrous. He's monumental. He's mountainous. He's oversized. He's planet. He's prodigious. He's stupendous. He's titanic. He's towering. He's tremendous. He's vast. He's walloping. He's big. He's big. You are listening to the Concierge Minister Podcast, a place to grow, learn, and be inspired as you discover God's purpose for your life. Here's your host, the pastor you've always wanted without the church, Dr. Kumar Dixit. Today, fall flat on our face. We're focusing on the topic of worship. And when we worship God with unabashed devotion, something mystical happens. Something that you and I cannot explain happens when we come before the throne of God and worship him. It's in our focus of giving God our full attention. Somehow, we change. If you have not changed once you've encountered God, you have not worshipped him. The Hebrew word for worship is, is on the screen. It's shakah. And it means to depress, to, to prostrate, to, to fall down, to crouch down, to to show reverence, to stoop. And then there's three words in Greek that help us. And the first one is sabamai, and it means reference or to hold in awe. It's used ten times in the New Testament. The second word is latrua, and it's to render. It's talking about worship gatherings, kind of having church or, or to have homage, and it's used 21 times in the New Testament. But the word that I want to focus on today is, is a Greek word called priskunio, and what it is, it means to, to kiss like that of a dog licking his master. How many of you have dogs? I'm so sorry. And when I come to your homes... The reason I don't make pastoral visits to your homes is because when I come to your homes, no matter what, wherever my finger is, a dog's nose or tongue will touch it. You may not know this, but I'm Indian. And we eat with our hands. Do you know that? And do you know what happens after a dog touches my hand? And so the idea is, is that, that a dog is licking his master's hand. He, he's, he's crouched down. He's paying homage. And, and one of the original meanings behind this is, is to, as if there was a king standing before you and you can't help but to get down on your hands and knees and to worship. You're listening to the Concierge Minister Podcast. If you want to support this unique ministry, you can make a contribution through Patreon. Become a monthly donor or one-time giver. Your contribution allows Concierge Minister to provide new resources to help you live your best life. Just visit the show notes to find the link to Patreon.
so it's in this translation, the proscunio, that we borrow the idea of falling flat on our face before God. It reminds me of Revelation chapter 7, verse 11. It says, All the angels were standing around the throne and around all the elders and four living creatures, and they fell on what? Their faces before the throne and worshipped God. The Bible has countless examples of worship. Uh, uh, we as humans are attempting to worship this creator, this God, in, in his time and space. It's a, it's a way for us to express um, our love and devotion to something that's greater than us, someone that's greater than us, someone that's greater than humans who deserve our respect. And so today, uh, we're going to attempt to take a little short worship experience. Uh, we're going to study a particular passage of Scripture from Isaiah chapter 6, where we will deconstruct worship at its core. The Bible has many examples of worship. We see it all throughout Old Testament and New Testament. But I want to focus on Isaiah 6 because it seems to be a perfect idea. It exemplifies what true worship is. And so today, over the next few minutes, we're going to try to cover a little bit of um, details on worship. We're going to learn about the overwhelming size of God's reach from heaven and to earth. We're going to learn how humans see themselves in light of God we're going to witness God's restorative power that takes place in worship. And then we're going to see God's invitation to join him. Let's take a look at this passage of scripture in Isaiah chapter 6. It says, In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, and two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they called to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices and doorposts, the, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined. For I'm a man with unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. And then the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And with it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away from the altar." Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send who will go for us? And I said, Here I am. Send me. As we take a closer look at this passage of Scripture, we're introduced to this young man named Isaiah. Uh, through a dream or vision, he's given the privilege that almost every one of us will never have. And that is, he was given the privilege to witness the presence of God in his home heaven. And so Isaiah is taken up into heaven, and the Bible says that he is in the throne room where God resides. Can you imagine the scene with me? From his vantage point, it says that he looked up high, very high, to the throne where God was seated. 
And this picture is, is, is not of a God that, that isn't quiet. It's not a quaint encounter of an old man that we think of a God with a big long beard just kind of sitting and crocheting something. This is a, a, a powerful experience of God sitting up high upon the throne. And as Isaiah looks upon it, it's not just a quiet, si- solemn experience. There's a lot of stuff happening. And what Isaiah witnesses in the heavenly throne is enraptured by the presence of a holy deity. Seraphim, also known as angels or a form of angels, are hovering around God. They have six wings and, and four of their wings. Just think about this. Four of the six wings is to protect themselves from God's glory. It says that they have two wings covering their eyes from looking at God directly. It says they have two, two wings covering their feet from being burned to crisp away from God. And then they use the other two to fly and to hover around and worship God. I think about this idea that angels, angels themselves are protecting themselves from the holiness of God. And so when we read this similar account, uh, there's, a, there's a same uh, a, a, a story that takes place in, in, in Genesis 33 where Moses is warned by God to not look at him directly in his face. Look at it with me. 33 verse 20 says, But he said, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me, and what? Live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, meaning his shadow is passing by you in the cleft of the rock, I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. We're talking about a huge, almighty God. Are you following me? He's not your pillow pet. He is God. And so while the angels are flying around the courtroom of heaven, worshiping him, while they're covering their faces from their glory, they express their worship by saying to one another, holy, holy, holy is God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. You see, as they speak of God, as the angels are speaking of God, the Bible says that the doorpost of the temple is shaking. Smoke is billowing out of the temple, filling it where God is residing. Are you following me? Do you see this image of God? Uh, Revelation 15, 8 says, The temple was filled with smoke from God's glory and power. And so as we enter the gates of heaven, we see Isaiah, what he's witnessing himself. You can't help but feel like this is a terrifying, overwhelming experience. Here is God up, a th- up on a throne. Seraphim are flying around and chanting the holiness of God. The building is shaking just from the voices of the angels, and the smoke is filling the temple. It reminds us, verse 1 reminds us of the scope and size of God. Says, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe is filling the temple. Where's the temple? Here on earth. And so God is up high in heaven. And the Bible says that just the hem of his robe, 
Just the hem. Do you all know what a hem is? I had to look it up. The hem of his robe is filling the temple. Now, you all know me as, you know, Kumar Dixit, the chill pastor at this rock and roll church. But every once in a while, when I need some respect, I put my robe on. Now, if I were to pastor another church, this I'll be wearing every week, okay? And, and this is what I wear at, at weddings. Just imagine God's robe. And, and, and the hem of his robe, just, just the last little layer of his robe, the Bible says that his robe is so huge that just the train of his robe, just the train of his robe fills the temple here on earth. That's huge. And in worship, it helps us recognize the grandiosity of God. When we experience his fullness, his majesty, his supersized grasp of the universe, God is behemoth, he's bulky, he's colossal, he's cyclopean, he's elephantine, he's enormous, he's extensive, he's gargantuan, he's giant, he's gigantic, he's great, he's immeasurable, he's immense, he's jumbo, he's levithian, he's lusty, he's monumental, he's magnificent, he's massive, he's mighty, he's mondo, he's monstrous, he's monumental, he's mountainous, he's oversized, he's planet. He's prodigious. He's stupendous. He's titanic. He's towering. He's tremendous. He's vast. He's walloping. He's big. He's big. And as human beings in our infantile size, we can't help but realize how enormous he is. And what he wants us to realize is that as huge as he is, he's still connected to you here in this earth. He's our lifeline. Last week, my family took a trip to Canada to visit my family. In fact, I had the privilege of baptizing uh, five of my nephews in, in, in the swimming pool of the backyard. And, and on the way to Canada, we go to Canada about two or three times a year. Um, this time, we decided to stop by Niagara Falls. I don't know if you can see anything beyond that beautiful girl, but I'll help you. There's the falls. Just stay right there. there there's the falls. And my kids, we've gone to Canada so many times, but we've never taken them to Niagara Falls. And, and, and when you look at the falls and you're driving by, it looks amazing. From your hotel room, we were on the 42nd, what were we on? Something. 150th Something, right? Floor. And, and, and as we're looking down, it looks gorgeous, but you can't really fully get the breath of the falls unless you come closer. And as you get closer and closer, you see this amazing falls. And we went to the Maid of the Mist. And as we're taking the Maid of the Mist, it's this boat that takes you to the foot of the falls. My kids are there. They're looking. It's wonderful. It's a nice boat ride. There's, you know, uh, what are they called? Birds flying in the sky, and there's rainbows. My kids are smiling, and then all of a sudden, the boat begins to get closer to the falls. 
and now it's getting windier, and it's getting rocky, and you're like about to fall to your side, and you begin to wonder, is the captain becoming a little bit too eager on this ride? And you start thinking, am I going to save myself because I can produce more kids later in life? Or should I try to save my kids? And just as you think you're about to capsize and die, he turns around. And you're safe with a little bit of rainbow on the other side. My friends, I can't think of a better metaphor than worship. Because it's about getting close and personal to a majestic God and experiencing his splendor without dying in his presence. The power and presence of God should scare you. His presence should be so overwhelming and titillating that you begin to wonder if you are worthy to be in his presence. And so you start to recognize his scope, his grandeur, that you finally come to grips with how insignificant that you are in the light of this God of the universe. We are small in comparisons to God's stature. God is so big that his train fills the temple here on earth. I want you to think about this for a moment. Because there are two things that we need to take away from this metaphor. One, first, is God is huge, but still that he is connected to this earth. He's our heavenly lifeline from heaven. In other words, God's presence extends from heaven to earth. His robe is an extension from holiness in heaven to humanness to earth. If you were Isaiah, how would you react? How would you react if you were in the presence of God, in his throne room? How would you react? It says that Isaiah cried. I think I would cry too. Verse 5, it says, Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. In verse 5, Isaiah teaches us two things. First, it's the power of confession. In worship, we are called to confess our sins. Are you hearing me? In worship, we are called to confess our sins. In fact, in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus teaches his disciples, and he says, confess their wrongdoings by saying what? Forgive us of our sins. It's in worship where we, where we come before God. It's in our brokenness. It's in our misguidance. It's where we acknowledge our weakness and realize that, yes, we are too small before God. You see, we live in a society that doesn't, ex that doesn't expect people to own up to their sins and misgivings. People don't accept responsibility for their own behavior. In fact, confession is something our culture holds in contempt. Unfortunately, we don't give enough time in our own worship for confession. Protestant churches, especially Seventh-day Adventist churches, often reject this form of worship because of the Catholic traditions that are associated with it. But yes, it is an important act within the confines of worship that we must participate in. Leviticus chapter 5, look at this. It says, when anyone is guilty in any of these ways, he must what? In what he has sinned. 
when anyone becomes aware, the, aware they are guilty in any of these matters, they must confess in what they have sinned. Now, this is key, verse 6. It says, this is the Old Testament model. Watch this. It says, in a penalty for the sin they have committed, they must bring to the Lord a female lamb or goat from the flock of a sin offering. And who? The priest shall make atonement for them and for their sin. New Testament, 1 John 1, 9, it says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and we will forgive our sins and purify us of all of our righteousness. Proverbs 28, He who conceals his sin does not prosper, but whoever, what? Confesses and renounces them finds mercy. Romans 10, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe with your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with, from your heart that you believe and you are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and you are saved. You following me? So Isaiah teaches us about the power of confession, but he also teaches us how to acknowledge the God that we were worshiping. Verse 5, it says, My eyes have seen the King the Lord Almighty. There are a lot of people who go to church and they have no idea who they're worshiping. And so in corporate worship, God is calling us to confess our sins, but he's also, he's also calling us to acknowledge who we are worshiping. And, and what we've been talking about so far, about the grandeur of God, is what I like to call uh, the, the demonstrative act. These are demonstrations of the power of God and his grandeur. But now we're going to focus on what it means to um, to witness a restorative act of worship. You see, as we worship God, when we come to God and we recognize the size and scope of God, what we have to realize is if we confess our sins before God, then we're going to expect God to restore us, right? So why is Isaiah crying? In verse 5, he's admitting his sins for having an unclean mouth. We don't have time today to go into the socio-political climate that existed during the time of Isaiah, but let me just say this. Verse 1 gives us a clue. It says, in the year that Isaiah died. You see, under the long reign of Isaiah, also known as Azariah, in the land of Judah, there was great prosperity. Uh, the, 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 all of the surrounding countries were, were, were prospering. And commerce revived. The riches of the nations flowed into Jerusalem. There was outward prosperity. However, it was not accompanied by a corresponding revival of spiritual power. So even though they were prosperous, they were not spiritual. And so after King Isaiah died, Isaiah the prophet is called by God to come up and speak on God's behalf. Now this is a, a challenging thing for prophets in, in, in the Old Testament. Because for most, most of the time, the role of the prophet was to be the bad news bearer. It was to tell the people how far they were from God. It was to tell the people how close they should get to God. And you know what? People don't like that. So almost 90% of the time, prophets were killed by their own people because they didn't want to hear what they were saying. And so we have this image of, of, of prophet Isaiah looking at what God is doing. And I want you to see what's happening in the middle of this act of worship. Here's Isaiah. He's been in this demonstrative act of worship, seeing the grandeur and the holiness, the greatness of God. And he confesses with his lips saying, I am a sinful being. I, I am unworthy. There's nothing I can do. I'm, I'm so overwhelmed with grief. Folks, that is probably the biggest thing that prevents you and I from having a relationship with Jesus, is focusing on the guilt and how far we feel from God. 
I can't tell you how often people are so plagued with their own baggage. And they say, I can't move forward in my spiritual journey with God. I can't serve God because I don't feel worthy to do that. I'm not sure if I can grow any deeper because I just can't let go of all the guilt that I've had from the sins of my life. And I want you to see what happens in this passage of Scripture. Because here Isaiah is confessing. It says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in my hand. What is a coal? What's a live coal? Is it hot or cold? Is it going to burn your lip? This morning, my wife woke up at 7 o'clock and turned on the barbecue and got a marshmallow. Pastor Dave, would you come up here, please? Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for volunteering beforehand. This right here is a burning hot piece of marshmallow. Can you feel it uh, in your mind? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and you're a pretty sinful guy, aren't you? Absolutely. Tell us a few things. <laughs> and, and what the Bible says is that the seraphim came, and he came and touched his lips. You can have this now. <laughs> it touched his lips, and, and here's the key. It says, with it he touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sins atoned for. You see, it's so hot, and what, is, what does heat do? It purifies. And so God is saying to him, it doesn't matter how, how unworthy you are, I will purify you in my presence. Now, do you remember that passage of Scripture from Leviticus? It said you have to go to the priest to be atoned for. Remember that? It says you had to get a lamb or a goat to be killed, and then you had to go to the priest, somebody else to atone for. What does it say here in this passage of Scripture? It's been done. It says he's taken away your sin, and it's been atoned for. This is what I call the restorative act of worship. Look carefully at this passage, because what Isaiah did is, is that he's making things right with God. He confessed, and he acknowledged God. You see, worship is about recognizing the size and scope of God. Worship is about recognizing our insignificant stature before a holy God. Worship is about confessing our sins before God. Worship is about God restoring you and taking away your guilt. And then there's something marvelous about this picture. The role of the angel is, spent, is, is to spend their eternal existence in worshiping God, right? That's the role of an angel. Their role is to just worship God for millions and millions of years. But we see this glory in Revelation 5. Take a look at this. It says, When I looked and heard the voice of many angels, many thousands upon thousands, tens of times ten thousands, they encircled the throne of the living creature and the elders in a loud voice. And they were saying, What? Worthy is the Lamb 
who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and power. Folks, this is the role of the seraphim, is to just do this for eternity. And in the midst of Isaiah's despair, in the midst of yours and my despair, God takes the angels and their role, listen to me now, and redirects them from worshiping him to minister to you and I. God takes away their role to come and forgive you and I. Uh, This is where the power of the robe comes. Uh, God is in tune where you and I are feeling here on this earth. He is acting in a restorative way to save you and I. It's in every act of worship that God saves us. Up to this point, we've heard only the voices of the seraphim and of Isaiah. In verse 3, we hear the chorus of angels. In verse 5, we hear the voice of Isaiah crying. And then in verse 7, we hear a single voice of a seraphim. You have to wait till you get to verse 8 to hear the voice of God speaking from his throne. Of all the things that God could say, what would he say to Isaiah? This is a monumental moment in worship. This is what the most holy, awesome deity is saying to his minuscule creation. Verse 8 says, Then I heard a voice from the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? This is what I call the reactive act of worship. God, plural, we, us, them, is inviting you and I to participate in his saving work. You see, it doesn't just end by making you guilty free. Now God is calling upon you. God is giving you his own altar call, asking you to act upon for him. He's inviting us to his plan. He's making us He's giving us an opportunity to react for him from our worship experience. When you and I have worship together, what's happening is a corporate understanding that God is inviting you into his throne to go back out and serve for him. And the question is whether or not you and I even hear God inviting us and whether or not we're cognizant enough to be responding to his call? If God has forgiven you, if he has touched your lips, then are you ready to respond to God's call? And so he he says, I've called you. Whom shall I send? Whom will go for us? And Isaiah, after worshiping God at the throne of heaven, he responds. And he says, Here I am. Send me. This is what I call the responsive act of worship. You see, in worship, God calls us to respond to him. This is the transformative, this is the incarnational side of worship where we change by simply being in the presence of the Holy One. This is why we worship God. This is where we get the word, the verb, prescunio. This is action taking place when God comes before us. 
Ultimately, the act of worship ends with a decision on whether or not you and I are willing to respond. How will you respond to God's invitation to serve Him? Thanks for listening to the Concierge Minister Podcast. If you want to learn more about growing in your faith or looking for an online faith community for support while you're on your journey, please visit concierge-minister.com or send us an email at concierge-minister at gmail.com. Don't forget to click the subscribe button and give us a five-star rating. If you find this podcast helpful, please tell your friends about us. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, go and live your best life.